0: We want to love like you. Love like you. Love because you first love us. We want to love like you. Love like you. Love because you first love us. Oh, you freely gave yourself. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. To us or or really words that we use uh, against other people. But in these, we would see your mercy because I think you're speaking to people like us at the end of the day who are prone to wander, who are prone to seek things we think will bring us life, like belonging and acceptance and acceptance. And we use people to get to get there. We just that's our that's our nature. So have mercy on us. We pray as we read this, um, help us to find the greater rewards that are found in you. Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we hear a lot of rewards. Uh, The father wants to reward. There is no reward for the hypocrite or at the end of the day, they get their reward. The applause, the transaction or whatever that is, but that's it. And, And someday that'll end for them. Um, but Jesus wants us to gain what he calls a greater reward that's found in relationship to him. Uh, But before we get there, I want to ask a question of you. What do you want? What do you want out of life? Do you? I hope so. I think that's a good answer. What do you want? Those are four words that are uttered in every rom-com film you ever see. Romantic comedies, they're my favorite genre, by the way. But they ask this question. Usually one of the partners is like, hey, what do you want out of this relationship? Tell me now. And it sends the other individual into a spin, out of control, a downward spiral. They have an existential crisis, and they try to find the life, the meaning of life. And it usually includes that other person in their life, which is totally unrealistic and usually untrue. But the question is a good one. What do you want? What do you want out of this relationship? What do you want out of this world? If you're a Christian, what do you want out of God? What do you expect from him? What do you think your life should look like? As I've been thinking about this, uh, I stumbled upon kind of promotional material for this great state of Nebraska. And we've we've gone through some changes since the 70s. 70s of what we like to call ourselves or or the motto, right? Like Nebraska Nice, I think, was tried on like an ugly sweater for a while. Uh, We're back to the good life, which actually, as I find out, and I'm reading these articles this week, I'm I'm, I'm working on a degree in counseling. So at night, I get to read all these articles, some that are interesting. Um, And this one was. And so I'm reading this article and it, it, it's discussing the good life and where that comes from. And come to find out it's connected to Aristotle and, 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 and what it means to be a society that lives these kind of fulfilled and, and lives of happiness, right? What does it mean to function as a society that is seeking fulfillment and happiness? Because whatever that looks like, that is the society that would be considered the good life. I think as Nebraska, I, I think that's good. That's a good idea. Um, but if you're like me, and if you're if you're kind of taking an honest assi- assessment out of life, you know, happiness and fulfillment can be tricky. It can be kind of fickle uh, because suffering or trials or things not going our way or you know true oppression that happens in our in our society and violence. It's not easy to stay happy and fulfilled. So does the idea of the good life cease to exist when you're no longer happy, when you're no longer fulfilled? The answer from Matthew 6, and actually all of 5 through 8 in Matthew and in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, is no. It doesn't cease to exist. The good life is possible. You just have to recalibrate What you're expecting out of life. Recalibrate your purpose in life. I think when most, and and, and these Harvard researchers did this great 80-year-long study on what matters most to people. And um, one of the questions they asked, and and, and today they were asking before they started this study, or before they um, concluded this study, they asked millennials. And this could, it doesn't have to be millennials. They get the bad rap, right? Boomers and millennials, we like to talk about. The Gen X are cool because they listen to Green Day and, and Pearl Jam and they buck against the system. That's, that's who I am, a Gen Xer. But we're all like this. At the end of the day, they, they, they took the survey and the poll found that 80% of this group, and you know, surveys they're surveys, but 80% said what they really want out of life, their main purpose is to make a lot of money, to be wealthy, to get rich, And then 50% of that same group said uh, that they wanted to be famous in some way, you know? And and we could say and and bag on uh, the influencing, influencer kind of um, population, uh, but there is kind of a trend where people are looking to get wealthy and to be famous, even if it's for a moment. But at the end of the day, they found in doing alongside of this question that they're asking in today's society, today's culture, they did this 80 year long study. What truly makes a person fulfilled was what they were trying to ask. And it's not money. I mean, you, you know this. It's not money. It's not fame. Those are temporary things. It's connection. It's human. Human flourishing is connected to human relationships. The health of human relationships. And that's essentially what Jesus is, is trying, is getting at here. The fundamental issue that Jesus is addressing in this passage are he's, he's confronting the people who are trying to make money and build relationships for their own selfish purposes. See, making money and building relationships are good things. But what happens when they consume you, when that's all your life is, and you have to get more and more, never ends. You might do whatever it takes to keep that power. That's the trap that he says leads to vanity. And this is the fundamental issue that Jesus is addressing. Only he's not talking to the billionaire who's exploiting the workers, but he's talking to leaders in the church who are using people, who in public promote a pious lifestyle, things that sound like the Bible or Christianity, but on the inside of their hearts, they're like the pumpkins that are outside of my door, which have been ravaged by squirrels. <laughs> Do you have those pumpkins? Dude, they're, I, we're leaving them there, just as a statement piece. <laughs> they're rotten to the core, right? But Jesus, but, but Jesus, when, before he starts talking about it, he uses a phrase that troubled me this week in chapter five, he uses the phrase, you therefore must be perfect. He's talking to a bunch of ragamuffin people. He says, you therefore must be perfect. Like, What's he doing there? Is Jesus telling us to keep our noses clean in order to be accepted by God or be a part of the kingdom or be a part of, part of the new heavens, new earth? That can't be right. That's not what we've been talking about all these weeks, at Redeemer on a Sunday, and Bible-believing gospel, teaching churches. And it's that kind of message, "Keep your nose clean and you'll be accepted," is exactly what these religi- religious leaders were teaching. And they were creating more and more rules to keep you safe, right? And really, they were creating more distance between you. And the God they, pr- they, they, um, they promote as serving. But that isn't what Jesus is teaching. See, this meaning of being perfect, that perfection language, has more to do, the meaning has more to do with completeness, wholeness, health, well-being, welfare of the city. Some of the Old Testament talks about. Be about the welfare of the city, Jeremiah 29. I know the ways I have for you, declares the Lord. plans to prosper you. To be about your well-being. This word perfection means. Another word in the Old Testament is this idea of shalom. Whereas you look out at the world, and, and, and this is hard to see, but imagine a place where everything is functioning as it should. That, in a nutshell, is what God is at the business of doing. He's rescuing the world back and creating this world. And one day it'll function as it should. Be perfect as I am perfect. In my perfection, you will start to feel your completeness, is what he's using by that word, perfection. In short, he's not looking for people to be outwardly perfect Remember, the people he's talking to are the poor, the children, they're women, they're people like have limitations, aren't able bodied, have skin disorders uh, by outward appearances, appearances. People would have kind of stayed away because they might have become unclean. They were discarded people. This is who Jesus is building his kingdom around and with and through Such a beautiful picture, especially if you're someone who feels discarded, like you don't matter, right? He's saying you can have completeness, wholeness, that I'm offering a liberated way of life, not one that's stuck in performance, a different kind of reward system. And so I hope it leads us this morning to say, well, how do I get to be a part of that? How do I get it? How do I get into this kingdom that has a better way of life, the good life? First, we're told from the text, you need to confront your heart condition, the church's heart condition and your heart condition. You need to confront it. Jesus does that with a command or a warning. Right? In verse one, one through two, look there with me. It says, beware of practicing. Your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's limitations on being a street performer, on playing the role as a Christian, but having nothing to back it up, but being totally empty, not bringing anything to the table, right? It's a warning statement. It's the kind of word you'd see posted on someone's house, maybe in this area, with big, powerful dogs. Uh, I think my mom had one of those outside of our window. We had a German shepherd that was really lazy, so I don't know why we had the word. (laughs) But, you know, that is what Jesus is using. He's saying that behavior, not bad behavior, but good behavior that is motivated for all the wrong reasons to be noticed, to be seen, to grab power and approval. This type of behavior is toxic. It'll destroy the church. It'll destroy the church. Now, remember that Jesus is singling out church leaders when he's saying this. Verse 2, he's calling them hypocrites in the synagogues. Now, the idea is that he uses, he's saying they're doing this while using some of the fundamental basic avenues of a relationship with God. Giving, praying, and in verse 16 later, he'll talk about fasting These are assumed Christian practices. When you practice your righteousness, the the, the behaviors of someone following Christ, what you're going to see in there, you'll probably see prayer, right? If you're at any Christian meeting for very long, you'll see prayer. You'll see giving, charity. And maybe not in Presbyterian circles, but in most places, you'll see some fasting. Um, At least that concept is here, right? Going without, delayed gratification, these three things are common in any Christian organization. But what Jesus notices, what does he notice that's happening in front of the temple on the streets? It's these people. These, he's calling them hypocrites who are praying what? Praying loudly. Long prayers. I mean, this kind of behavior in leaders is the reason why I don't ever want to come back to church sometimes. You know, um, If you look out in the world, in the landscape of Christianity, you see a lot of this kind of thing. Long prayers, Uh, people trying to prove their existence, Uh, people trying to make a splash or be powerful within Christian communities because there is a lot of buying power. So some of this is being marketed right now in our context, and I, I get it. It's disheartening to see And if you're someone who's disheartened or cynical about the church and you're about ready to leave, just stay, stay with me for a moment. Jesus doesn't like it in either. He's mad about it. Right. He's confronting it. He's saying that ain't going to last. There's no reward. The only reward is the extra following the applause. But it's all very temporary. And so we need to address leaders like this and confront them. And I know that's a difficult and tricky thing to do. Um, And if you're a leader who's prone to that kind of behavior uh, here now, that needs to stop. That isn't healthy for the community. It's not healthy for you. No, and just from personal experience, when I was a pastor, so I resigned from being a vocational pastor. There's a whole conversation we can have. Never. No, I'm just kidding. At some point. But I resigned uh, three years ago, four years ago. I can't even remember now. Um, thank you, Don Marie. Four years ago. Is that what you said? Okay, I believe you. And um, you know what I noticed? I was getting burned out, and one of the reasons I was getting burned out is is because of I really. I, I was kind of trying to be the same person in private and public, but there were a few people that I felt like there were other leaders in the church that I just felt like I could never please. And that could have been my own perception. I'm acknowledging that right now. That could have been my own own perception. But I was working hard to try to get them to be pleased with my work. And I just felt like everything I did were just there were holes. Um, I couldn't do I, I couldn't. Do enough, or do the right things well enough. Leaders who are on this path are are, are getting into a performance <laughs> trap, and that shouldn't be, make you mad. That should make you really sad, disheartened. You know, um, you don't want leaders like that are falling into that place, and and that was kind of a path that I was on, and so I acknowledged that before you. Um, it almost crushed me. That wasn't the good life. And so we must work to confront and to help leaders like that, right? With these words, these gracious words from Jesus. It doesn't have to look like that. Your ministry doesn't have to be in that slump, in that performance treadmill. So he is doing that. He's confronting those leaders. He's also, though, don't miss this. He's turning to you. He's turning to us. Right. Because these are words for us in this moment on this Sunday. And he's saying saying this, if you if we were to see you in your life at home, when the cameras are not rolling, would we see the same person when the cameras aren't rolling? What you are in private is what you really are. What you are in private is what you really are. That's a tough one, it's a tricky one, because so many of us are just getting to know ourselves. And if you're a teenager, that, it's never more true than now. And so you need to have all the space in the world to change your mind about who you are. Please, don't hear what I'm not saying. On the other hand, there are people who are actually playing a role they're playing the role. And what they need to do is just come in the light and admit it. Because that ain't going to help you. That ain't going to last. That's going to drain you. We want you to become a whole connected person. An integrated person. Where your inside matches your outside. And I hope that Redeemer is this place where that can happen. I think it is. Where we can actually come alongside of one another and not be so shocked we shouldn't be so shocked if brokenness is a thing in the world, right? And the fall of Adam and Eve happened, it affected everything. We shouldn't be so shocked. Uh, no matter how bad you think things are, it's never too bad that Jesus can't come in, touch it, and heal it, and transform you. Come into the light. So he's confronting our heart condition, but the second thing to notice, he's saying, not this, imitate this, imitate this, imitate the healthy heart. In verses three through four, but when you give, so it's not this, but this, when you give to the needy, the assumption is we're going to be giving a sound, no trumpet. Can you imagine do, 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 giving? I don't know. It was entertaining. It's a great Halloween story. Um, just thought I would slide that in. It says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So Jesus is making the argument here that the flourishing church is the community marked, I think, by radical generosity. It's marked by radical generosity. It's a church that has deep concern for people. That term forgive has an expansive meaning. It's not just resources. It's not just your pocketbook. It's not just your your money, your cash. It implies all kinds of deeds done for the well-being of others because good deeds done to get a reward from others is just a business transaction I'm sorry to Chick-fil-A I love your chicken but my pleasure is I think you believe that but at the end of the day we just did a transaction I paid you money you gave it to me and I'm glad you served me and you like doing that this is different this is done with no expectation of receiving something back that's a generous church Think about that. If, this, if that's what marks this church and our churches, you're going to see the good life. People flourishing, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Wherever you see Christian communities that are generous, not just with money, but also in how they welcome all kinds of people, you see the good life. You just do The Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is getting at. But that's one part of charity, right? Welcoming, receiving. He's also asking us to use our gifts. And that's an argument he's been making all along uh, since chapter 5 when he talks about being salt and light. What does it mean to be salt and light? It means that you enhance the community around you. So on the one hand, while he's saying be generous people, not know what your left hand, what, what, not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's saying, be generous with your life. He's also saying, be generative. That's what he wants you to imitate. The healthy heart is one who's generous and generative. It's creative. Essentially, that you're using your gifts. You have a role to play, whether you believe it or not. Uh, there's one of these questions that I ask my sons periodically. Hey, what do you think your role in the world is? (laughs) That's such a deep question. I just. What do you think Jesus is asking you to to be and to do? To impart what kind of gift to impart? And I'm sorry, but I'm an Enneagram Four, So if you're in my family, you're going to get these kinds of questions because I'm also I always search my own soul. Like, I don't know who I am. Uh, but one of my sons says his talent is to make other people laugh. That's pretty good. He's got a lot of talents, and that's what he singled out. I was like, all right. So make me laugh and don't make me cry anymore. <laughs> Bear fruit, brother. Come on. Then the other one I asked, I said, hey, you know, what? what's your gift? And he's like, when is Halloween again? <laughs> All right, it's in a couple of days. Oh, good. I can't wait. That's it. That was our discussion. (laughs) I think that his goal or his role will be to wipe tears away from people's eyes, to enter into their lives, to be able to be not uncomfortable with someone who's struggling. Friends, you have been made to have a purpose. You've been made generative, to be generative, to bear fruit, like the psalmist says in Psalm 1 Your life is meant for others, whether you have wealth or not, if you're able-bodied or not. God made you, and he made you in your life to enhance the world around you and whatever you do. In some ways, whatever your work is, it doesn't matter. It does not it doesn't. The goal is that you're bearing fruit where you are. I think that is just hopeful to me. That's a taste of the good life and not the performance treadmill that we're often, so often on. People will experience a taste of the good life through your life. So how do we get the generous life? How do we become imitators? How do we get on that path? Well, I love, hate the idea of the cloud. I just tried to work with the cloud, uh, with Jen Heinrichs, and it just wasn't working, it still isn't working for me, Um, uploading something there. Uh, But smart tech people tell me if you have files and pictures and docs, On your phone, you can sync them into the cloud and not worry about your phone crashing unless you didn't back it up like me 365 days ago, uh, in which case you're going to lose a lot of things. But the idea is that you have something to support and sync with, to align with, right? It's similar here. How do you get the kind of heart that's generous and generative, that's healthy? By having your heart aligned with God's heart. It works in similar ways, says that concept of the cloud. The aligned heart. See, there's this repeated phrase in here about God uh, throughout these verses, throughout these six, and actually down through 16, that the hypocrite, and it's reward from your father. Look there with me, verse one. Hypocrites will receive no reward from your father. Your father who sees in secret will reward you, verse four. And verse five, verse eight, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask them. What's Jesus saying? He's using relational language there from your father. Relationship with your father. He's saying that knowing the father is rewarding. I like how one commentator puts it as he discusses the meaning of reward here. This is what he writes The word posits a living, reciprocal, mutual relation between father and child. When the relationship is between father and child, the transactional idea of rewards falls away. A father's reward to his child is the father's greater closeness. Now, just a moment. I do think we will have rewards in heaven of some type. It's this is bananas if you're not a Christian, because it's like, you know, it's mind blowing You're casting crowns down before the feet of of God Almighty. And there is something that's going to happen as we produce fruit. That fruit is going to last into the next life. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to be awesome. So come on, be a part of the Christian community. Um, No, for real. There will be rewards, but there's something deeper going on here. Closeness with the Father. And if you've experienced this in your earthly father or earthly parent, you know, you got a glimpse. But closeness to God of the universe is the reward. I love it. Just I had to get my head around this. Uh, Because I think it can be troubling for some of us to admit that we want closeness to the Father because, you know, maybe we didn't have the best. Examples of a father growing up, uh, that was my story. I wasn't too close, never really, I didn't think I ever wanted it until recently. Uh, Being a father, I'm like, man, it would have been so cool to be close, uh, to have that closeness, to be aligned, to be in sync, to have someone that supports me. I love the show Ted Lasso. And if you are someone who can't access the show, I'd love to figure out how we can make that happen for you. If we can have some sort of showing here, just a few of my favorite episodes. But the character I love the most is the footballer, Sam. Uh, Sam is from originally from Nigeria. Uh, this show, you can ask someone who loves the show about all the context, and, um, but I need to move along here. Uh, Sam, with AFC Richmond, soccer player in US terms. He's intellectually curious, he's emotionally uh, intelligent, and he's just kind. He loves his parents, especially his father, whose uh, loving support inspires Sam to maintain his integrity above all else. See, Sam is the same person in private as he is in public. His strength to live with integrity in the end, comes from another source outside of himself, right? It comes from his father. At one point in the show, Sam faces the possibility of losing everything if he protests the team sponsor for this global issue that's going on that would affect his family and, and all of his relatives uh, back home. I mean, his fears of what he could lose were palpable. And what does he do? We see and we get the camera, right? But you can imagine this being in secret, or try to imagine that. He calls his dad. He says, look, this is a big decision. His dad, I think, to some effect says, you know, just know I love you. I'm proud of you. Before any decision was being made, now that can be used as a manipulative tool by fathers, (coughs) by the way. We like to use manipulation all the time. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) but you get this, this vibe that this is a genuine conversation between father and son and that the father truly is impressed by his son. He is proud. Whatever happens. And Sam makes his decision. And because it's a, it's a nice show, it ends up being great. He <laughs> gets everything back and more money. Uh, That's not how life works, but he keeps his integrity, even though he could have lost everything because his father's proud of him and it moves him. How much more as we align with the God of the universe, who's without guile, without hypocrisy, who always has your best in mind, how much more? Will we sense our completeness as human beings in his presence and our greatest fears, the possibility of them melting away? How does that happen? Look at verse six. It's the final point. But when you pray, but when you pray, how does it happen? Prayer in this life. One day we'll be face to face. Right now it's prayer. Prayer is his powerful vehicle. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Like that phone call Sam made with his father. But this is God of the universe that you have access to. Jesus gives us an image of a supply room. And a supply room was the only room in poor Palestinian farms that could be locked. Here's what he's trying to do with that image. On the one hand, If you think about it, this would have been the dusty, smelly, no air conditioning kind of room that's not suitable for guests. I know it's hard for some of us to believe this in contemporary society unless you, like us, have a room that we don't want anyone to go into that does have important things in it. It also has a lot of things that we just don't know what to do with, and it's crazy messy, right? Uh... No one else has that kind of room. Okay. But you know, it's too messy for anyone else to see that if you saw it, I'd be in, I mean, I'd be embarrassed. Could Jesus be saying, you know, that part of you that you think is too dark, too messy, the thing that you're trying to cover up as you perform in the streets, you know, that place that's too messy that you don't want anyone to see that you would be embarrassed you think they would shame you. That's the place I want to meet you. I want to meet you. Not just to embarrass you more. to shame you more. To guilt you. To not doing enough. But so that you can hear me say. I'm not embarrassed. I'm impressed with you. I'm proud of you. The question at the beginning. What do you want? Ultimately don't. You want to matter. Don't you want to matter? Yes, we want to matter. And what Jesus is saying is in this private space, and of course we know it doesn't just have to be in some physical door where you lock it and go in and and pray, but it's all the time, right? You have access. You matter. If you matter to no one else, you matter to God. And he'll meet you in those places that you are afraid to show anyone. You have value, and in this and through prayer is where God communicates His care and, and shares His creativity with you. But the other thing, the the last thing is, in any agrarian society, that one room that gets locked has all the prized possessions. It has the grain for the animals. It has these heirlooms. I imagine that uh, alabaster perfume that was filled in that alabaster heirloom Mm -hmm. that the woman broke over Jesus. Because to her, Jesus was more precious than that perfume, her life savings. She showed a costly thing to him. I imagine that would have been in this room, locked up in the back. Here's what's going on. Could Jesus be saying that as you practice prayer, not only does he meet you where you are and who you are and he invites you to come out and just admit that so he can put his healing hand to your life. But could he also be saying that, look, expect transformation, expect to meet glory, expect to be transformed and meet his heavenly riches in that place through prayer. See, in the Old Testament, God is seen in a movable tent, a tabernacle. He's tabernacling amongst his people. He's moving around. And the priest can meet with God only by going through this um, robust cleansing ritual. But see, the priest doesn't get to go into the holiest place, (coughs) the place where the true power and riches resides, because it would be too much for him. He couldn't do it. Only the one who's sinless can. And of course, there's no one on earth. We read in Romans 3. We read that elsewhere. Ecclesiastes 12, maybe. Anyone else has a Bible verse out there? Anyway, you can throw it around later. But no one is righteous. Except for one, right? It's Christ. It's Jesus. The sinless one. Without guile or hypocrisy. Gave up his life. He paid the price of admission on the cross and he entered that holy place. But here's the twist. He got shut out. So you didn't have to get shut out. You gained access. You gained a hearing. If you're someone who's not ever, if, you, if you're so sick and tired of not being listened to in this life, Christ, you have access to the one who listens all the time. He sees, he hears, and he draws near. In fact, he's so close, he's made us residing in us. You have his access card to the holiest place where the heavenly riches of God's grace resides. If that's your story, it changes everything. gives you the ability to live life with integrity, where you allow people to get inside the rooms that are all the mess but you're no longer embarrassed because he's not embarrassed. So it doesn't matter if they are. At the end of the day, they don't have the ultimate say. They don't, re- they don't give you the ultimate reward. He does. If this is not your story and you start to live life playing the role of the pious person to be seen by others, just know that that reward will end and it ultimately leads to death. That is not the good life. Trust me, I know. God invites us into the good life. And we're going to fumble and get clunky and be embarrassed people and awkward about it. But but that kind of path is going to lead, even though it's messy, dirty and dusty and smells sometimes, it's actually going to lead to a flourishing life as a community where we get to see one another using our gifts in ways that are transformational to the city. So consider that, Matthew 6, the greater rewards found in the good life offered by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, for your word to come true in our hearts, we pray, Father, that these wouldn't just be words that that we dismiss. We we actually wrestle with them. Um, Because in these are, what we find are words of life. And so you are the true... Uh true leader uh, that never failed. You were the true leader that did not Love like you, love like you, love because you first loved us. We want to love like you, love like you, love because you first loved us. We want to love like you, love like you, love because you first loved us.